being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong This is Crackpot Toberfest 2022 by Programmed Chill, hosted by yours truly, Jimmy Fallon Kong. Crackpot Toberfest is an exploration of the intersection between horror films and the horrors of real everyday life. Horror films are more than just a source of fun thrills. They're a window into the darkened corners of our world. In this series, I hope to explore several films which knew more than they should which point to occulted truths. Through facing our fears, we learn about the world and about ourselves. Just don't stare too long at the shadows. This is Premium Episode 47. Novels as Spycraft 8, Paranoiac Films Part 5. First entry into the Crackpot Oberfest. Girl Interrupted, or Dr. Strangelove's Daughter on some MK Ultra shit. A year back, one of my listeners, shout out Tara, Tara recommended that I check out Girl Interrupted, the 1995 film, as well as the memoir by Susanna Kaysen. Tara says she had recently rewatched it and saw it with new eyes, and several things jumped out at her. Although I knew some of what she was talking about, I didn't know all of it, so I thought I would check it out again, right? And oh boy, was she right. There's a lot going on with Girl Interrupted. I think that what I'm going to do is to discuss the memoir, and then Kaysen herself, and then the film, and then maybe to look at the historical record, such as it is. This is a rare double entry into both novels as spycraft Granted, yes, it's a memoir, not a novel, but whatever, I can't rename the series Literature as Spycraft now, can I? And an entry into the Paranoiac Films. And, like I said, first entry into the Crackpot Overfest. Girl Interrupted is the memoir of Susanna Kaysen. The memoir came out in 1993, and it discusses the author's two-year stay at McLean Hospital which is a private mental hospital and psychiatric facility. She stayed there from the years 1967 through 1969. The memoir is quite short, and it's a quick read if you're interested. Like, it's like 168 pages of, like, memoir writing, right? I'll refrain from judging it. Like, it was written decently. I'm not a fan of, like, memoirs, you know, a million little pieces style confessional memoirs on sometimes like transgressional like this wasn't really transgressional but like I'm just not a fan of this genre of literature right but I'm not going to shit on it if nothing else Girl Interrupted was an early entry into the gold rush of memoirs so if it feels contrived a little bit you gotta take into account that like to a large degree other people were copying this rather than the other way around 
So Kaysen's memoir does not tell her own story in a direct way, but because I'm not concerned with literary merit here, I will tell the more chronological version. So in 1967, Susanna Kaysen attempted suicide. Then, somewhat after that, she met with a psychiatrist who recommended that she check herself into McLean Hospital. At McLean, Kaysen was diagnosed with bipolar personality disorder, and her stay of what was intended to be several weeks turned into 18 months, almost a full year. Much of the memoir involves Kaysen telling her story interspersed with the stories of her friends, which is to say fellow patients, mostly other young women. There's a whole cast of young women, each with kind of implausibly with a different mental illness. There's Lisa Rowe, the sociopath. There's Polly, the patient who lit herself on fire. There's Georgina, who has schizophrenia. Georgina is Susanna's closest friend. Then there's Lisa Cody, who is a sociopath, who is also a sociopath, but a drug addict. There is overlap, uh, I believe, with some drug rehab at this facility at this time. There's Daisy, who has OCD and an eating disorder. There's Tori, a drug addict and or nymphomaniac, and several others, right? There's also several staff. And while some of the staff are disliked by the young women, there's really no nurse ratchet type of figure. It's certainly not one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And while Kaysen definitely explores themes of like, how crazy am I versus how sexist society is? You know, it's not very much going into like, damn, society is the mentally ill one, you know? So the patients, you know, are decently characterized but I found the work to be too short to really get attached to them as they come and go. For instance, Daisy commits suicide in the memoir, but you had only really just met her, so in terms of impact, the effect is muted. Like, that's real life, sure, but like, you know. So Kaysen gets, she eventually gets out of McLean. She marries, she eventually meets Lisa, Lisa Rowe, I think, years later, and they discuss their experiences briefly. Kaysen reflects on the nature of mental illness and whether she was mentally ill and to what extent that mental illness was informed by societal conditions, largely sexism, right? I am sympathetic to that line of inquiry, to be sure, and I do not want to make it seem like I'm criticizing the memoir, necessarily. What takes the work from being a perfectly fine, otherwise non-sus entry into the corpus of memoirs, what takes it to that next level? The reason why I'm doing a Program to Chill episode on it is the fact that Kaysen's father was basically Dr. Strangelove. Yes, that's right. The classic case of, hey, why are your parents' names in blue on Wikipedia? Hey, why do they have their own Wikipedia entry? Yes, that's right. It's all about who Susanna Kaysen was, who her family was, and some of the interesting anecdotes she chose to include. Her father was extremely important, as it turned out. And yes, while we definitely have to raise the question of credibility, Susanna Kaysen is like, she's bipolar, right? Like, that's not, that's, you know, that like, that's not the most, like, lying diagnosis 
You know what I mean? Like, I could see her lying just as much to cover up some of the class stuff as, you know, due to mental illness. The point being that, like, when she tells something, like, I more or less believe it. And wouldn't you know, she doesn't cover up a lot of class stuff. So I tend to believe that most of these anecdotes are correct. And, oh, we will get into these anecdotes. So... Like I was saying, Susanna Kaysen's father, Carl Kaysen, he got a bachelor's degree at the University of Pennsylvania, and then he was an economist for the OSS, which is to say he was in the OSS from the years 1942 to 1943. How does one become an economist for the OSS? Why your professor recommends you, which is what happened to Carl Kaysen via his professor, Edward Mason, Carl Kaysen said, I worked on miscellaneous things. I became a railroad expert. I did an analysis on the capacity of the Manchurian railways to sustain a Japanese defense against a Soviet attack in the Far East. I got fairly involved. I got fairly heavily involved in a fascinating effort that was organized by a man named Eddie Mayer, who had been a petroleum geologist to make estimates of the supply problems of the German army and the Soviet Union, unquote. All of these topics are very programmed, chill-oriented things, are they not? So Kaysen worked in the OSS, quote, determining effective targets to impair the German war effort, unquote, both in bombings and otherwise, or at least those which they could bomb without pissing off the Bush family, the DuPonts, the Boston Brahmins, steel and oil interests, or, of course, without crippling German industry, right? Like, this is stuff like we talked about in the Krupp Steel episodes. As we established in earlier episodes, Kaysen would have been in on the talks where they planned to bomb population centers, rather than bombing, say, Krupp weapons factories. He absolutely would have been one of the guys... Uh, working on that, right? From the years 1943 to 1954, he was in U.S. Army Air Force Intelligence, where he was cleared for Security Clearance Ultra, which during the war pertains to, you know, efforts to decrypt German encryption, right? Which is to say, very high secret, (laughs) very high security clearance. Carl Kaysen said, I got into the intelligence business in a serious way. We relied mainly on three things, photo interpretation, the signal intercepts, and prisoner interrogation, which was very important. I actually participated in a few interrogations, unquote. Oh, really, dude? Okay. I mean, granted, a lot of them are Nazis, but like, just so you know, this guy is like a real spy. <laughs> Around this time, during and after World War II, Kaysen worked with the Rand Corporation, working on air raid and nuclear strike scenarios. After World War II, he attended Harvard and would ultimately get a PhD from Harvard in economics. Kaysen also did graduate work at Columbia. While at Harvard, he became an assistant professor. He did some clerking for a judge working on an antitrust case one of the first after, like, you know, 
the wave of them in like the 1910s or whatever. He served in the military again. He eventually became a full professor, and then he became associate dean in the at Harvard in the 1960s. From 1961 to 1963, Carl Kaysen was the deputy national security advisor to President John F. Kennedy. And I quote, a position in which he concentrated on foreign trade, economic policy, and the potential use of nuclear weapons. In this capacity, he was asked to prepare a report on how to utilize the U.S. nuclear arsenal to preemptively destroy the Soviet Union's nuclear capacity and its ability to retaliate with nuclear weapons, unquote. One of Kaysen's reports analyzed the first strike nuclear possibilities and war plans, and Kaysen estimated something like half a million Soviet casualties in one of his scenarios. Apparently, his reports freaked out the Kennedy administration, which is not to say he wasn't their guy. He was their guy. It's just they were like, oh, fuck. So Kaysen worked extensively with McNamara and Yarmolinsky on the wargasm issue. That's war orgasm, wargasm. This was the idea that in the event of a war with the Soviet Union, each branch of the military had their own plans for responding to nuclear strikes, which if, you know, paired together and maybe, you know, two of the three were able to go, would have led to massive nuclear overkill. They knew this was a problem, so Eisenhower took nuclear strike planning away from individual branches of the military and gave it to the RAND Corporation for planning and oversight. The resulting plan, PSYOP-62, that's not PSYOP with a P, right? That's S-I-O-P for Single Integrated Operational Plan. PSYOP-62 was still a wargasm, basically. It would have been a single coordinated attack that would have still used all of the United States' nuclear arsenal on the Soviet Union and China. Yes, you heard that right. And China. They were planning on nuking China whether or not China was involved. The long and short of it is that Kaysen was on some Dr. Strange love shit. Like, Kaysen in particular believed, probably accurately, that they, at one point in the Cold War, had a 90% chance of wiping out all Soviet missiles before they could retaliate. Like, this is basically General Ripper shit, but, you know, rather than it being from a war-crazed general, it's coming from Carl Kaysen, the Harvard economist, right? Now, Kaysen was literally one of Kennedy's top guys, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was right there counseling and advising him. And I quote, Carl Kaysen was essentially in charge of all other White House foreign policy matters during that time, unquote. That like, you know, week and a half, like two weeks, where Kennedy was pretty much only focused on the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kaysen was running everything else. They actually called Kaysen the vice president in charge of the rest of the world at that time. Kaysen was privy to some pretty interesting shit, too. He talked about how the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were planning to construct a, and I quote, deep underground command center, unquote, under the Potomac. 
a sort of bunker that could survive a nuclear attack, which for some reason went under the acronym DUKW. But the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Kaysen said, always opposed the idea. Kaysen at one point asked Harold Brown, who was then the head of defense research and engineering at the Pentagon. He asked him why the Joint Chiefs of Staff were against this (laughs) deep underground command post. Well, Harold Brown said, basically the chiefs probably aren't interested in having the civilian command survive. If we were to come to a war, they would only get in the way. Unquote. Kaysen also speculated that part of the issue had to do with, quote, the attitude of the admirals, unquote. Now we're talking deep underground military bases and the Joint Chiefs of Staff not really wanting civilian command to survive after a nuclear war. We are getting into some heady shit here. Continuity of government shit. Yeah. So Carl Kaysen also helped write one of the nuclear test bans in 1963. Weirdly enough, Kaysen was also close to Greek Prime Minister Andreas Papadrou, who he knew from his time at Harvard. President Kennedy would write of Kaysen. I'll try Kennedy voice. I know of no other... I know of no one who has the comparable ability to analyze a large amount of material and then put the essential information in a report in a way that makes the decision process much easier and more precise. I feel like I'm halfway there. Better than I thought, but it's, it's not perfect. In case my accent impaired the listening, he said, I know of no one who has the comparable ability to analyze a large amount of material and then put the essential information in a report in a way that makes the decision process much easier and more precise. This was in like a letter of a letter of recommendation style like thing, basically. After the whole Kennedy thing didn't work out, Carl Kaysen became professor of political economy at Harvard. Then he served as director of the Institute for Advanced Study from 1966 to 1976. He took over the position from J. Robert Oppenheimer. For those of you who don't know about the Institute for Advanced Study, oh, now there's a good afternoon. In other words, and I'm not implying that this is directly related, but while Carl Kaysen's daughter was locked up at McLean, her dad was one of the highest-ranking spooks in the country, privy to some of the top secrets. Later in 1967, Kaysen became professor at MIT. He soon became their professor of political economy. Why, yes, Chomsky and Kaysen would have known each other. Unfortunately, I could not find any interactions. I'm sure they did have interactions. If anyone knows any, I'd be interested to hear. Sometime after that, Kaysen was on a commission studying higher education. He eventually became the director of science, technology, and society at MIT. After the Berlin Wall fell, Carl Kaysen wrote an essay called, Is War Obsolete? Such are the writings of a professor of political economy, right? Brain genius predictions all around. Then again, John Kenneth Galbraith called Dr. Kaysen the most widely read, the most widely informed man I know. 
So what do I know, right? I'm just a small town podcaster who knows that war is never obsolete. Carl Kaysen would die in 2010. So Susanna Kaysen's father was one of the guys involved in planning full-scale nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. Do you think that might infect her psyche? And oh, that that were the only thing going on with her, too. But unfortunately, it is not. So, Susanna Kaysen never lays out the full story clearly in her memoir. But she discusses having an affair and or being groomed by her high school English teacher. I say affair because I think that's closer to how she describes it. Grooming would be how I describe it. Kaysen and her English teacher may or may not have slept together. She's a little bit cagey and a little bit coy about it. Kaysen states that this same English teacher also got involved with Kaysen's own boyfriend and that this teacher was eventually fired. Sounds like a wild dude. It was this same teacher who took Kaysen alone to the Frick Museum where she saw the eponymous girl interrupted at her music painting by Vermeer. The whole affair seems very U.S. private school-esque, like the Dalton School seems very fucked up. And while I don't blame her for not wanting to like lay the whole thing out in sordid detail in her memoir, it seems very much like the major impetus for her suicide and mental illness. Though she does not directly say that herself, she is sort of pointing at it, right? I mean, she all but says it, but like doesn't blame him, I guess. There's this passage where she's looking at the Vermeer painting, and she writes, I moved backward, trying to get beyond the range of her urgency, but her urgency filled the corridor. Wait, she was saying. Wait, don't go. I didn't listen to her. I went out to dinner with my English teacher, and he kissed me, and I went back to Cambridge and failed biology, though I did graduate, and eventually I went crazy. Unquote. So, Kaysen was sent to McLean Hospital, which was the preferred mental institution for Boston Brahmins and other people of that approximate social class, which is to say, the top social class. It is to say, the power elite. McLean was named after John McLean, a Boston merchant, a Freemason, who endowed the hospital. I tried to ascertain whether he was involved in the slave trade. If he was, it would not have been directly. And you know how it is with these merchants. They don't want to be linked to that, right? I tried to get on my Gustavus Meyer shit, but there wasn't a ton on McLean. Tara, who recommended the movie and the book in the first place, she told me how the woman who wrote the famous nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, worked at McLean as a nurse, interestingly enough. I'll go through some famous patients of McLean in maybe ascending order of interest. Nah, Vaguely chronological order. So there's Frederick Law Olmsted, the landscape architect. There's John Nash, the mathematician, as depicted in A Beautiful Mind, the film. Nash, of course, had schizophrenia, so he was there for that. There was Ray Charles, who wasn't crazy, but got caught with heroin and was sent there for observation. There was... James Taylor, the singer-songwriter, 
he stayed at McLean for mental illness. He wrote the song, Knockin' Round the Zoo, about the experience. I believe I'll play that a little later on in the episode. There was Marianne Faithful, the British Invasion singer-slash-groupie-slash-celebrity. She stayed there for rehab. There was David Foster Wallace. I think he was at McLean, and I think he was also at facilities and rehabs around and in the same network, both. He was, yeah, I'm seeing here, he was at McLean for four weeks related to alcoholism and depression. That's right. Infinite Jest, though it focuses mostly on a rehab facility, absolutely is talking about places like and very much inspired by McLean. Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, he was there for rehab. Sylvia Plath, she was at McLean for six months. She would write about the experience in the bell jar. She said, and again, I don't know if this is a ringing endorsement given what happened to Plath, but she said McLean was the best mental hospital in the United States. Also, there were several more WASP poets and literary figures that I'm basically snubbing by skipping, but a lot of uh, socialites, a lot of famous people, a lot of rich people went through McLean. So early on in the memoir, shortly after establishing the scene and the cast of patients, Kaysen tells an anecdote about being visited at McLean by Jim Watson. That's right, Jim Watson of Watson and Crick. That's right, Watson and Crick of the discovery of DNA, of the Nobel Prize. Watson and Crick, who discovered the double helix structure of DNA. Watson visited her and talked to her. He showed her his brand new red sports car, and he offered to take her from McLean and to go off to Europe, to England together, to be a couple. Now, this is an insane anecdote, because Jim, James Watson would have been like 39 years old, and also it's left unstated how he knew her or why, why he would have thought she was a suitable romantic partner. She would have been 18 and in a mental institute. To his credit, he wasn't married yet. He would get married in 68. So, yeah, maybe he could have been married. It's implied that he did this in 1967, but, like, how did they know each other? And, like, Watson's, like, a freaking scuzzy guy, man. Like, he argued in favor of eugenics on a number of occasions. He said, people say it would be terrible if we made all girls pretty. I think it would be great. Also, Watson and Crick did not properly attribute their colleague Rosalind Franklin for her contributions in discovering DNA, which Watson largely said was, like, true. Like, yeah, I didn't do that. So would Watson be the type of guy to hit on a younger woman in a susceptible state? Like, yeah, probably, actually. And this is going to be a recurring thing for this episode. Just all the vibes are going to be very much like the J.D. Salinger episode that I did. Weird, depraved wasp shit, basically. Then there's an interesting story about Georgina and her boyfriend, Wade. If you'll recall, Georgina was the one with schizophrenia. Wade was a patient in the men's wing 
of McLean. They would interact, like I think that they would go to a shared cafeteria and that they could like sometimes interact on like, you know, certain times of day. Georgine explained that Wade's father was the problem. His father's a spy and Wade's mad that he can never be as tough as his father. I was more interested in Wade's father than in Wade's problem. A spy for us? I asked. Of course, said jo said Georgina, but she wouldn't say more. Wade and Georgina would sit on the floor of our room and whisper. I was supposed to leave them alone, and usually I did. One day, though, I decided to stick around and find out about Wade's father. Wade loved talking about him. He lives in Miami so he can get over to Cuba. He invaded Cuba. He's killed dozens of people with his bare hands. He knows who killed the president. Did he kill the president? I asked. I don't think so, said Wade. Wade's last name was Barker. I have to admit, I didn't believe a word of what Wade said. After all, he was a crazy 17-year-old who got so violent that, he, that it took two big aides to hold him down. Sometimes he'd be locked in his ward for a week and Georgina couldn't get in to see him. Then he'd simmer down and resume his visits on the floor of our room. Wade's father had two friends who particularly impressed Wade. Liddy and Hunt. Those guys will do anything, Wade said. He said this often and he seemed worried about it. Georgina didn't like my pestering Wade about his father. She ignored me as I sat on the floor with them, but I couldn't resist. Like what, I asked him. What kinds of things will they do? I can't reveal, said Wade. Shortly after this, he lapsed into a violent phase that went on for several weeks. My words here. Then in a, in the same anecdotes, you know, Susanna Kaysen talks about how Georgina and Susanna made caramel candies. Re remember, for context, this is a bougie, expensive private hospital, right? So they were allowed to do stupid shit like this. And in the anecdote, Susanna accidentally poured hot sugar onto Georgina's hand and burned her. And this provokes her to write, I can't remember if it was E. Howard Hunt or G. Gordon Liddy who said during the Watergate hearings that he'd nightly held his hand in a candle flame till his palm burned to assure himself he could stand up to torture. Whoever it was, we knew about it already. The Bay of Pigs, the seared skin, the bare-handed killers who'd do anything. We'd seen the previews, Wade, Georgina, and I, along with an audience of nurses whose reviews ran something like this. Patient lacked affect after accident, and patient continues his fantasy that father is a CIA operative with dangerous friends. Unquote. So take note, dear listener. Susanna Kaysen alleges that the mental patient, Wade Barker, told them all about G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt before they were famous, before all of this came out in the Watergate hearings, which, if you'll recall, occurred in 1973 and 1974. Now, obviously the book came out in 1993, but if she's lying, this would be a very curious lie. And I tend to believe her, which is a very interesting story, right? I tend to believe it largely because it's like, okay, well, the story boils down to some CIA man had a crazy son who was in a mental institute 
who had met G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt at some point. Like, that's functionally a pretty believable story, right? But you know me, dear listeners, I am relentless. I had to try and figure out if Wade Barker was a real guy. Gotta find Wade Barker. Now, a lot of things come up when you search the name. But if you boil it down, it's mainly some doctor who would not be the right age. And then there's a series of pulp ninja books. These shitty novels. We're talking Dragon Rising, Serpent's Eye. Lion's Fire, Phoenix Sword, Vengeance is His, War of the Ninja Master. You get the idea. With some digging, you can find that Wade Barker is a pseudonym for an author named Richard S. Myers, a.k.a. Rick Myers, born 1953, who did a few sci-fi novels and some tie-in novelizations for Star Wars, some superhero shit. Like I think he wrote an Incredible Hulk novel, I guess. He's got his own Wikipedia entry, right? But here's what's interesting. Rick Myers was born in Connecticut, the son of Stanley Myers. Now, supposedly, Stanley Myers was an executive for the National Association of Retarded Children, which sure sounds like a cover story. Doesn't sound like you would spend your whole life working for the National Association for Retarded Children. Also, I know for a fact there's a picture of JFK speaking in front of the National Association for Retarded Children. So, Rick Myers, the son, right? He went to Emerson, went to Boston University, went to University of Bridgeport. Right place, right time. Then he got into the comic book industry. He's way into martial arts. He did ghostwriting. Sometimes he speaks at comic cons and so forth. Also, hilariously, he's sometimes at medieval times where he's the king. He's sometimes a mall Santa. I found him on Twitter. I reached out for comment, but he did not get back to me, which is a shame. I might have to splice in if he does eventually get back to me, but... Interesting, right? Like, time, place, age... My point is that the age matches, the pseudonym matches, the location matches, the social class matches. Like, this is probably the guy, man. And if this sounds like a stretch to you, remember, E. Howard Hunt wrote pulp novels in exactly the same genres as Rick Myers. Granted, yeah, fewer ninjas, but not by like a ton, right? What's more, Myers wrote most of his novels for Warner Books, which of course is owned by Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers had a relationship to E. Howard Hunt. They bought the rights to one of his worst novels for $35,000, an unusually high sum, and some people have speculated it to be some kind of payoff for something. So, Warner Brothers connection for both. Side note, one of the series that Rick Myers ghost wrote was for the Destroyer, basically a character like the Punisher. The premise is that a ex-cop was framed for murder and then fake executed, only to be surreptitiously taken away and trained to be an assassin for a non-existent three-man agency that has to go outside the Constitution in order to protect the Constitution, which 
God dang, if that doesn't sound like some kind of G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt bullshit justification, right? Oh, and I didn't mention, but Rick Myers' Twitter handle? Rick Myers007. Case closed. Knocking around the zoo on a Thursday afternoon. There's bars on all the windows and they're counting up a spoon, babe. And if I'm feeling edgy, it's a chick who's paid to be my slave. Yeah, oh, watch out, James. But she'll hit me with a needle. She thinks I'm trying to misbehave. Now the keeper's trying to cool me. Says I'm bound to be alright But I know that he can't fool me Cause I'm putting him up tight, yeah And I can feel him getting edgy Every time I make a sudden move Whoa, whoa, yes it's true And I can hear him celebrating Every time I up and leave the room anecdotes in this memoir like the patient daisy was the victim of incest in the memoir the patient lisa explained speaking about daisy's father he can't believe he produced her he wants to fuck her to make sure she's real unquote 
Now, if you'll recall, I mentioned that the character Daisy ends up committing suicide. This whole plotline would be greatly expanded in the film. We'll get to that in a little bit. So one of the doctors at McLean, a Dr. Wick, was from Rhodesia, which I found to be interesting. Susanna Kaysen also points out that the shrink who, who sent her to McLean in the first place had been accused of sexual harassment by a former patient. Susanna Kaysen also uses Lewis Carroll metaphors, which is not like, you know, red alarm sirens or anything, given that madness is literally a part of Alice in Wonderland. But she says, I wasn't simply going nuts, tumbling down a shaft into Wonderland. It was my misfortune or salvation to be at all times perfectly conscious of my misperceptions of reality. I never believed anything I saw or thought I saw. Not only that, I correctly understood each new weird activity. Unquote. Susanna would explain that McLean Hospital is located in Belmont. Belmont being at that time largely inhabited by engineers and technocrats living in the area. She pointed out that the main other type of person in Belmont was the John Bircher. She said, the John Birch Society lay as far to the east of Belmont as the hospital lay to the west. We saw the two institutions as variations on each other. Doubtless the Birchers did not see it this way, but between us we had Belmont surrounded. Which is funny, because for sure they were insane also. The patient, Lisa Cody, the drug addict, she was a Greenwich, Connecticut debutante. The other Lisa, Lisa Rowe, constantly threatened the staff she threatened them by threatening to call her lawyer, which is, like, very on-brand for, like, Connecticut, you know, socialite assholes, basically. And Lisa also claimed that she was sleeping with her lawyer in the lawyer-client conference room of the courthouse. Susanna Kaysen described also talking to the student nurses and feeling sad when their engagement rings were small. So, like... Yeah, real asshole rich girl shit, right? They described watching TV and seeing society in upheaval. Quote, The world didn't stop because we weren't in it anymore, far from it. Night after night, tiny bodies fell to the ground on our TV screens. Black people, young people, Vietnamese people, poor people. Some dead, some only bashed up for the moment. There were always more of them to replace the fallen and join them the next night. Then came the period when people we knew, not personally, but knew of, started falling to the ground. Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. Was that more alarming? Lisa said it was natural. They gotta kill him, she explained. Otherwise, it'll never settle down. It was when we saw Bobby Seale, bound and gagged in a Chicago courtroom, that we realized the world wasn't going to change. He was in chains like a slave. Cynthia was particularly upset. They do that to me, she cried. It was true that they tie you down and put something in your mouth when you had when you had shock to stop you from biting your tongue during the convulsions. Lisa was angry too, but for another reason. Don't you see the difference? She snarled at Cynthia. They have to gag him because they're afraid people will believe what he says. Unquote. Like, whoa, man. Though it's like, you know, mostly true. Also, I liked Kaysen's line. 
yeah, people started dying that we knew, not personally, but knew of. And it's like, your dad literally does know Robert Kennedy. Like, your dad was, like, close friends with John F. Kennedy. Like, what are you talking about? Susanna Kaysen explained that it costs $60 a day for them to stay there, which would be something like 200 to $300, you know, in today's currency per day. And mind you, that's just the room, not including therapy, drugs, and consultations, all of which were extra. She said, the price of several of those college educations I didn't want was spent on my hospitalization, unquote. Everyone there was either wealthy or they didn't stay very long. Interestingly, we're talking tunnels here too. Susanna Kaysen became obsessed with the tunnels. Apparently there were tunnels connecting all the buildings, and she loved to go down in the tunnels, which, god damn if this doesn't feel almost like fate. Also, Kaysen argued about her diagnosis, not so much directly, but she would say, what does borderline personality mean anyhow? It appears to be a way station through neurosis and psychosis, a fractured but not disassembled psyche. Though to quote my post-Melvin psychiatrist, it's what they call people whose lifestyles bother them. An analyst I've known for years said, Freud in his circle thought most people were hysterics. Then in the 50s, it was psychoneurotics. And lately, everyone's a borderline personality. Unquote. Which, like, I'm halfway there with that, but, like, if you know any people with BPD, like, I'll be damned if there's not something going on with them that isn't just, like, lifestyle differences, you know? Now, I'm humble enough to not feel like I need to draw any conclusions about Susanna Case and herself. Obviously, I think she was a spoiled rich girl, but, like, that doesn't explain everything about her. And I'm not trying to, like, write her off, right? Yes, clearly, this is a case of social and real capital allowing her to live as a writer and then to write a book, which gets a movie deal. Yeah, but that's the way of the world, right? I don't know enough to be able to judge her character necessarily. And one memoir doesn't truly allow you to do that. I mentioned it up top, but I couldn't help but keep thinking of the J.D. Salinger episode, and I couldn't help but compare Susanna Kaysen to Joyce Maynard. And as it turns out, the comparison is pretty apt, because for some reason, both of them wrote memoirs about how their pussies don't work. This was a major component of Maynard's memoir about her time with Salinger, if you'll recall, and Kaysen wrote a whole separate memoir about it called the camera my mother gave me. The camera, in the title, of course, referring to her, you know, genitalia, I suppose. Now, I'm attempting to sidestep the gender aspect of it, but, like, what is it about WASP authors in general who are obsessed with their own genitalia when it comes to writing? Yes, technically, both Susanna Kaysen and Joyce Maynard are actually Jewish, but I don't care. They're still wasps to me, you know? Salinger, he's still a wasp. I don't care. I'm not a wasp, so I can say it. Updike, Roth, yeah, sure, Roth 
Jewish, not Wasp, but whatever, you know. Updike, Roth, Maynard, Kaysen, various others. It is definitely a preoccupation. I know they say write what you know, but like, god damn, there's something more <laughs> beyond your dicks and your pussies, I swear. And I'm not squeamish, I'm not against a sex scene now and again, but like, it comes up a lot. So, Kaysen would write to the Paris Review, wink, why she wrote, girl interrupted. She said, what had spurred me to write was rage and a desire to dissect this world. And that didn't seem to register for a lot of these people. Unquote. She's referring to the readers who, I guess, don't pick up on her rage. But, like, it's a very weird statement to make because I don't get a lot of rage from the memoir. I get a lot of passive-aggressive pettiness. And, trust me, I know passive-aggressive pettiness. As someone incredibly motivated by passive-aggressive pettiness... Sometimes just aggression. I'm not passing judgment here. I'm just saying, don't get a lot of rage out of the memoir. She continued saying, I just feel like I didn't even write this book. Unquote. <sighs> Which is always a risky statement, right? When it could very literally be true, given how the industry actually works, and given how these Silver Spoon authors particularly work. Then she wrote, my book, there is this blankness and omission, a lot of omission. I don't write about my family, really. I don't write that much about my internal state. It's not about me. Unquote. Which is true, but then she spends a statistically significant portion of it talking about Jim Watson, G. Gordon Liddy, E. Howard Hunt, CIA shit, JFK, RFK, MLK, tunnels I don't know man it's a it's a confounding work in some ways like what the hell is going on here Just have some kind of 
So I'm not going to go scene by scene through the whole film. Suffice to say that the memoir and the film are very different things, only vaguely related, right? Again, I don't really dislike the film. It was good. Great performances by the actresses, for sure. Has a decent soundtrack. It has kind of a muddled message, such as it is, but, like, I'm not going to complain. My wife called this movie Manic Pixie Scream Girls, which I thought was pretty funny. In some ways, this film reminds me of almost like the blind side, but for mental illness. But, to be fair, way less offensive, probably, than the blind side, I guess. This film does kind of remind me also of that trend in movies, like, in the 90s in the, U- in the United States, like, say, Seven Years in Tibet, which is to say, a biopic that fails to mention how the main character is a Nazi, in the case of Seven Years of Tibet. You would never know, just like how you would never know watching it that Winona Ryder's character's dad is basically Dr. Strangelove. A curious omission, if you will. So I'm going to go through a few of my notes. First of all, the film opens with various scenes establishing Susanna Kaysen as a disaffected young woman. My main note here is that they don't really show them as having a nice enough house. They were a lot richer than that. There's this whole interesting thing where, like, her parents are shown as mainly caring about, like, whether she shows up to her own birthday party because, like, they invited all of their, like, adult friends. And for some reason, like, their adult friends would care if they if she showed up. And then, again, these are shown to be, like, normal people in, like, a small house rather than, like, I don't know, functionally the social circle of, like, the Kennedys, basically. <laughs> really colors the whole, like, uh, story when you realize that the parties that her parents are getting on her ass about not attending would be full of, like, I don't know, people in, like, the State Department and, like, academia. Interesting, right? The Georgetown set. Mm -hmm. So there's this interesting visual motif that recurs, at least in the first half of the film, about various authority figures being associated with images of JFK. And I mean, like, not subtly. Like, frequently it is, like, literally an image of Kennedy floating around what whatever adult is, like, yelling at Suzanne at the time. Whether it's a picture on a wall or a yard sign. I think it's, like, a, like a school counselor and, like, one of her psychiatrists, I think. And it, like, there's, like, several instances of it. Not entirely sure what they're trying to say with that. So Susanna Kaysen, of course, is played by Winona Ryder. So she gets sent to McLean, which was renamed for the film. I think they renamed it to Claymore or something. And so she meets a whole cast of lovable and... A whole cast of lovable young women with different mental illnesses, right? For some reason, they change Georgina from a schizophrenic to a pathological liar. And then they make Georgina a mega fan of the Wizard of Oz, which was not in the memoir. Around this same time, early on, 
they have all the young women watching I Dream of Genie. Now, I find these to be very interesting pop cultural reference points to be inserting, and, dare I say, suspicious. I mean, you want to talk about, like, some mind control. What is I Dream of Genie but an incredibly freaky TV show, right? The husband is an astronaut. Genie is like his slave who has to obey him. Like, what the hell, man? So, one of the other patients is Lisa, played by Angelina Jolie. If you'll recall, Lisa was a sociopath, which is curious because, like, Again, I'm not the mental health understander, but they have Lisa acting a little bit more like borderline. And then it, they don't, like, Susanna's supposed to be borderline, but she doesn't really act like it. And what's weird is that they show Lisa to be, like, almost like a lifer. But I don't think that they actually keep sociopaths in mental facilities that long. Separate from, you know, when you're stuck there for, like, criminal infractions. I think that most of the lifers are like people with schizophrenia and various types of psychosis. I don't know. But, I mean, it's an inspired casting choice because Angelina Jolie does an amazing job. They depict Lisa as wearing a U.S. Air Force shirt, which makes you ponder things. They have Brittany Murphy playing, as, playing Daisy. Daisy, of course, has OCD and an eating disorder and so forth. Daisy was the character that was getting molested by her father, and they really build out that plotline, which is not in the memoir. Or I think it is in the memoir, but it's like a single line, right? Now, on the walls of Daisy's room, as in she herself would have put them up, are these, like, butterflies. To drive home the incest point, I guess... One of the other patients is played by Elizabeth Moss, the actress and Scientologist. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg would be the head nurse. It's interesting, right, because they made Winona Ryder's character. They made her dress very French New Wave, like she has sort of like a Jean Seberg haircut, which I would call atypical for the United States in the 1960s. But who am I, right? Who am I to criticize? And by the way, she has that short, you know, that short haircut for the full two years she's in there. <laughs> it never grows out. Doesn't change at all. Welcome to Jimmy's continuity mistake corner. So Jared Leto, for some reason, is in this film. Not a huge Leto fan. He plays Susanna's boyfriend. Again, if you'll recall, her boyfriend is largely absent from the memoir. So this is mostly just made up, right? And they invent this whole plot where he's like trying to dodge the draft. But it's like by far the least interesting part of the movie. Um, the film is not perfect. And mind you, I'm not like a warrior against fat phobia. But they do the classic Hollywood thing of making the fat characters different, you know, patients they make them nameless and crazier and with fewer speaking lines than the rest of the characters all of the main characters are like thin women who are conventionally attractive whatever you know it's like 90s hollywood shit it's fine so 
in the movie, they depict the tunnels. And in fact, several of the major scenes of the film take place in these tunnels. The whole movie is about the power of hanging out, having girlfriends, and being less self-absorbed. Which I mean, yeah, like those are all good things. You should be less self-absorbed and you should hang out and have friends. Which, you know, I'm not knocking the film for gearing the message to the audience, right? But that's not really what the memoir is about. The film depicts them finding out that Martin Luther King died, but not RFK, like we talked about. At one point in the film, they find out that they're making a new Disneyland, Disney World to be specific, right? And so Lisa talks about going to Florida where they could become Disney princesses. Then also they talk about, but do not depict, the electroshock therapy. Halfway through the film, Susanna and Lisa escape the facility. Immediately they get picked up by some filthy hippies in a van. And... There's this very prominent, like, military fatigue jacket that one of the hippies has that has, like, a back patch, okay? Never mind that back patches, I don't think were that common yet, but the back patch is the flag of Taiwan, or the so-called Republic of China. This is both ahistorical due to the back patch, and also because I am certain there was not a sizable number of hippies with Republic of China backpatches running around in the era where, like, Mao's brand was, like, real hot shit, right? I mean, what did the Beatles famously say? But, like, oh, don't carry around the little red book. So, like, there's no way that there are hippies with a Republic of China backpatch. This was very strange, Okay. It was weird enough to the point where I started to wonder whether there was some sort of obtuse point being made about geopolitics. And no, I'm not just zeroing in autistically on this, okay? Because in the same scene, right after looking at the jacket with the ROC flag, Susanna and Lisa share a kiss. This is the famous bisexual kiss scene, right? And the whole scene in general is either coded as a moment of like arousal or elation, depending on your perspective. So why the fuck are they injecting this Taiwan shit into it? Right? Is this almost like some weird behavioral shit? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just riffing. I'm just speculating. But if that were the extent of it, if that were the only time the ROC flag shows up, that would be one thing. But the Taiwan thing pops up again, if you can believe it. So, in the film, Susanna and Lisa escape, but they basically have nowhere to go, so they go stay with Daisy. At first, they sort of get along, they have like a tense truce, but then Lisa starts antagonizing Daisy. And eventually, Lisa yells yells at her. She yells some very cutting and heavy remarks about how everyone knows Daisy's getting molested by her father and so forth. And in the scene where this is occurring, the camera cuts to Susanna, Winona Ryder, right? Who's yelling at Lisa to stop the verbal abuse about incest. And the only thing in the frame is Winona Ryder's face yelling and in the background, prominently, 
is the freaking jacket with the flag of the Republic of China. Taiwan, right? Laid out very prominently. Why? Couldn't tell you. Like, like, what does, like, lesbianism and incest have to do with the Republic of China, Taiwan? I don't know. But it stuck out to me to the point where I'm like, am I having, like, apophenia? Is my pattern recognition just on the fritz, or is this, like, something going on here? So, in the film, Daisy went on to kill herself. They would not find out until the following morning. Notably, Daisy killed herself to a record on repeat. The song, Downtown, by Petula Clark. Shout out to the Twitter user Sortition Crank, who pointed out that this is the same song that the Nashville bomber Anthony Quinn Warner played from his RV before he would bomb an AT&T building, possibly also bombing the NSA in the process. Is this song a trigger? I don't know. But it is weird, right? In the wake of the suicide, Susanna went back to the facility while Lisa went on to Florida. Eventually, Lisa gets sent back to the facility too. But in the film, they depict the patients watching The Wizard of Oz again. And the film's climax takes place in the tunnels. And there's this real shift into like horror film territory where Susanna's like running around the tunnels getting freaked out. Lisa and the other girls are like confronting her. At one point, Lisa is chasing her around with a hypodermic needle. And you know this film is beloved by mentally ill people because it depicts the main form of combat and the emotional climax of the movie being two mentally ill people using shrink talk to try and hurt each other, waging verbal combat. And they depict it as being effective and like finding a resolution rather than just going in circles as it normally does. Like I said, for 10 or 15 minutes, this turns into a horror film. Around the same time, Georgina shouts at Susanna that her dad is the head of the CIA. Now remember, in the movie, they establish that Georgina is a pathological liar. So this is read to be delusion and or a lie, rather than the original anecdote in the memoir, which was Georgina's boyfriend alleging that his dad was a spy, which was like probably true. Very interesting and curious change, right? Anyway, there's this hilarious scene where Susanna takes a taxi from the mental institute. After two years, she checks out clean bill of health and she says, well, here I am, a recovered person with bipolar disorder. Which, holy shit, does that not set realistic expectations for how recovery goes for BPD people, right? Like, she doesn't even really act like she has BPD. Like, again, I'm not an expert, but the film does have some level of catharsis, so it's all good. Like I said, pretty good, well-made film, 90s classic. Why, though? Why did they add The Wizard of Oz and Disney shit and The Butterflies? when, you know, most of that was not in the memoir. Why did they build out the incest plot in a way that doesn't necessarily add to the film? I mean, you can make an argument, but like, I don't know. These are interesting things that they added, and I don't 
know if they were necessarily organic additions. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure. Don't hang around and let your problems surround you. There are movie shows downtown. Maybe you know some little places to go to where they never close. Downtown, just listen to the rhythm of a gentle bossanova. You'll be dancing with them too before the night is over. Happy again. The lights are much brighter. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go downtown, where all the lights are bright, downtown, waiting for you tonight, downtown, you're gonna be alright for actresses now i'm going to be honest with you i kind of remember hearing auntie of crazy days and nights saying that like angelina was like very sexually active as a minor including with adults and was also into like some pretty far out stuff like we're talking knife play and bdsm which like yeah i know there are levels of bdsm or whatever but it's like different when you're like underage right all kinds of shit so like what i'm saying is that like angelina jolie was you know the right fit for that role you know she's there's a lot going on with jolie Brittany murphy of course would have substance and mental health issues that would become apparent later on in her career obviously and winona Ryder 
would not be an accidental choice either. Shout out again to Tara for bringing some of these facts to my attention. But Winona Ryder's father worked with Timothy Leary. I think they say he was his archivist. Ryder grew up on a commune out in California. Ryder's parents were friends with Aldous Huxley's wife. And I quote from Wikipedia here, Ryder's family friends were her godfather, Timothy Leary, the beat poet, the beat movement poets, Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and the science fiction novelist, Philip K. Dick, unquote. So we have a CIA asset, drug pusher, a pedophile, and I don't know the dirt on Ferlinghetti, and Philip K. Dick, who is realistically being targeted and harassed, right? Extremely, like, interesting, spooked up milieu. Side note here, the Rainbow Commune, which is where Winona Ryder grew up, was not that far from Calpello, which was, you know, the town where the commune was that Leonard Lake basically lived at and terrorized. They were both in Mendocino County, which is interesting, right? Further, Wikipedia says, Ryder began to devote her time to reading and became an avid fan of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. Which, I mean, come on, come on. Jared Leto, of course, no need to even start with that guy. Incredibly spooky shit there. Finally, to close, there's the question. Was McLean doing any MKUltra type shit? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. So first of all, Harvard was one of the main hotspots in the first place. The early LSD tests were at Harvard in the 1950s. And mind you, McLean was closely tied to Harvard. Harvard had medical schools on McLean's campus. Some of the doctors and nurses that Kaysen would have been interacting with would have been Harvard and Harvard. So it's not in dispute at all that Harvard had MKUltra shit going on. That's very well documented. But here at Program to Chill, we are not content with the limited hangout of MKUltra as LSD experiments, are we? Now allow me to quote from Executive Intelligence Review. And mind you, yes, this is the LaRouche cult. But take note, and fuck them. But nevertheless, EIR has some great stuff, so they wrote this article entitled Mental Health Scandals Signal Harvard Role in Mind Control Experiments. And the article is talking about the Bridgewater State Maximum Security Mental Hospital, which is about an hour away from McLean. But McLean would actually oversee Bridgewater until the 1980s, and they nevertheless still have, like, you know, crossover and overlap and so forth. According to one intelligence specialist, Bridgewater has been suspected of running mind control experiments on its approximately 450 patients. This may even date back to the notorious intelligence community-funded MKUltra experiments in mind control in the late 1950s, which sought to create Manchurian candidate assassins with drugs and behavior modification. MKUltra had a lot to do with launching drug use 
and cults in the youth ferment and counterculture project of the 1960s. According to Senate investigations by the Kennedy and Church Committees, side note, I think they mean Rockefeller Committee, which only concentrated on the earliest phases of the project, Dr. Richard Hyde of Harvard was one of the first was one of the recipients of CIA funding grants for this research, unquote. My words here, so far so good, all pretty much accurate, with the note of like, not the Kennedy committee, but the Rockefeller committee. Again, you know, there's some specifics about when it started and so forth, but nevertheless, the article continues saying, Then something happened at Bridgewater. In 1985, a private company, Goldberg Associates of Salem, Massachusetts, won the right to run Bridgewater from McLean Hospital, and patient suicides and related unexpected deaths began to rise. So they are alleging that weird shit started in 1985. But then the article explains that there was weird shit going on even before that. And this is a whole thing, like, people know about this, right? In 1967, a documentary came out called Titicut Follies. And the article says, The devastating film shows inmates, as of 1967, walking about completely naked. You see guards abusing patients. You see one inmate who is slapped by a guard. The excerpt is shown. He goes on. You see death. Well, not the actual death, but you see someone being fed with a tube down his throat, and as I recall, he died the same day. Another director at McLean Hospital, an associate of Gunthiel's program on psychiatry and the law from 1978 to 1980, was Dr. Park Elliott Dietz. Dietz was an expert witness in the trial of John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate President Reagan, unquote. My words here, Dietz also consulted and or testified in the cases of the serial killers Joel Rifkin, Arthur Shawcross, Jeffrey Dahmer, as well as the mass murderer Jared Lee Lawner, Richard Kuklinski, the DC snipers, William Bonin, and the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Another Harvard boy, right? So here we have Various types of MK Ultra activity at Harvard and related institutions. We have an MK Ultra doctor running Bridgewater. We have rumors of mind control style experiments. We have proven abuses, right? But what else do we have? Unfortunately, still a whole lot more. There was a joint project run by the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Health Physics Division of Oak Ridge National Laboratories called National Laboratory called the Boston Project. What was the Boston Project? It involved injecting subjects with uranium. The neurosurgeon, Dr. William Sweet, would later work on brain electrode implants. Relatedly, in 1961, researchers at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital and Boston University of Medicine would give radioactive iodine to 70 retarded children at Rentham State School. These institutions were receiving MKUltra funds. At Harvard, around this same time, 
they were also working on brain electrode research. Like we are talking about the guys working with Dr. Jose Delgado, the guy who could control a bull with electrodes in the brain, right? Some people might know the, that spooky video. I think you can see it on YouTube. Delgado, most recently, of like people picking up on it through that chaos book, right? So the doctors, Vernon, Mark, and Frank Irvin, and William Sweet, the same guy I mentioned before. One of their co-authors of these guys would go on to work with Dr. Jolion West at the UCLA Violence Center. <clears throat> Symbionese Liberation Army. <clears throat> Mark and Irvin would write a book called Violence and the Brain, which argued that brain electrodes could control urban violence. And by urban violence, you know they're talking about black people. By the way, Violence in the Brain, the book, would come out in 1970. I bought it. Haven't received it yet. So Irvin and Mark were writing about the very patients that Susanna Kaysen would have very likely known. So Mark and Irvin actually did implant brain electrodes into a large number of patients at Harvard hospitals. You heard me right. As per their book and their writings, they talk about doing this, including the case of a 25-year-old man named Fred who received a head injury while in the Navy. According to their description, Fred appeared to suffer from organic seizures. However, he also had a dissociative disorder. And I quote from the book The CIA Doctors Here. On one occasion, when he was driving a large trailer truck, Fred blacked out in the middle of Los Angeles and did not come to until he was on the outskirts of Reno. He had a similar experience while riding a motorcycle. Side note here. True Detective Season 2. Although nothing untoward happened during either of those two episodes, another time he did kill someone in a head-on collision. It is impossible to drive a truck from L.A. to Reno, a distance of 470 miles, while having a seizure. With absolute certainty, this was an episode of dissociative amnesia. Instead of providing psychotherapy for the patient's dissociative disorder, doctors Mark and Irvin attributed his amnesia to epilepsy and treated it with the electrical stimulation of implanted brain electrodes, unquote. I think what Dr. Ross, the author of the CIA doctor's book, is getting at is that they were not treating the actual problem and were instead fucking around with this guy's brain. More relevant to Girl Interrupted, Mark and Irvin had another patient, a 14-year-old girl named Jenny. They put electrodes in her brain. And I quote, Mark and Irvin observed that a baby's cry was able to provoke an extreme behavioral change in Jenny. They played a tape of a baby crying while taking EEG readings from Jenny's brain electrodes. She was then transferred to a state hospital and Mark and Irvin were unable to keep on with what we believed was necessary medical treatment. According to Mark and Irvin, it was epileptic discharges in her brain that caused Jenny to murder her two younger stepsisters. An alternative theory of the case based on chronic severe psychological trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and disassociative symptoms in Jenny would have led to a psychotherapeutic treatment plan. The mind control doctors saw their patients as biological machines, 
a view which made them subhuman and therefore easier to abuse in mind control experiments. The book continues saying, another patient in violence and the brain, 18 year old Julia may have also had an undiagnosed psychologically based disassociative disorder. Photographs in the book show her smiling, angry, or pounding the wall, depending on which button is being pushed on the transmitter box, sending signals to her brain electrodes, unquote. I want you to take note of this, dear listener. This is not rumor. This is very well cited. The doctors published this book, Violence in the Brain. The book, The CIA Doctors, is citing this direct quotes from the text. So, if programmed to chill is forced to ask, were they doing MKUltra shit at McLean Hospital? The answer is, unfortunately, yes. Do I think that they were doing it on the rich patients? Yes, unfortunately. They do... (laughs) These sickos will do this to their own children, right? I mean, Lord knows there's enough incest and things of this nature going on, but like Alan Dulles had one of these, you know, mind control doctors working on his son. Angleton's daughters got into a cult. Like, they don't care. They'll ruin their own kids' lives. So of course they will ruin the lives of like normal people, right? But my question is, you almost have to ask yourself, is Girl Interrupted a normal case of real capital being converted into social capital being converted into real capital? Like, is this a rich woman who gets into the arts because her family's rich and then the arts makes her rich via a book deal? Is this a classic story? Or is this, in some ways, a cover, a blind, a distraction from what was really going on at McLean Hospital? That's what makes Girl Interrupted a true horror show. That's why I picked it as a horror film in the Crackpotober Fest series. Thank you for listening, dear listener. For sources today, of course, I used the memoir, Girl Interrupted. I used a number of articles. Let's see here. The Paris Review interview, several other interviews with Kaysen, various New England Society articles on McLean Hospital. I did some gumshoe reporting for Rick Myers, a.k.a. Wade Barker. That's my contention anyway. Of course, there's the LaRouche article from EIR. Uh, The CIA doctor's book by Dr. Colin A. Ross, which is incredible. Now I need to be on my way to Northolt, Greater London. See you next episode, and God bless. (laughs) 